As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a few verses from Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Father, as we turn to your word to read of what it is that you have done down through the pages of history, we see your loving kindness as it radiates through each scene and, and each scenario. And Father, I pray that we will properly respond to your word, hearing the voice of God as he uh, comforts us, as he challenges us, Lord, as you draw us into that inner relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you will bless us this hour, guide us in our study of your word, that you might be magnified. And Lord, I thank you for each one here. Pray your blessing on each life for those that uh, are not able to be with us this morning for various region, reasons. Be with them and grant uh, strength and blessing to their lives and, and bless each mother, grandmother, great-grandmother in a special way this day. Father, we're grateful for those that have borne us and, and have led us and helped us down through the years. And for each generation that passes, Father, you are King and you are Sovereign Lord and you are ever faithful. And to this, for this, we give you thanks. We trust you to guide our thoughts now in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, I'd like to read beginning at verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. That is, of course, Jesse had eight sons, not David. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And the three older brothers of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his, of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Now you may remember, as we looked two weeks ago at the first verses of this particular chapter, that Israel and uh, the Philistines have lined up for battle in the Elah Valley, down in the, near the coastal plain of Israel. And there they stand, there's a standoff between these two armies. Each army fears the other enough that they don't just immediately launch an attack. And of course it appears that the Philistines have a trump card because they have a giant by the name of Goliath. And we talked a little bit about him. Conservatively speaking, he was nine foot nine, uh, which is, you know, tall enough and physically appropriate for his height. He was a very powerful man, and all of his weapons were larger than those of anybody else because he was a bigger man and could wield bigger and heavier weapons. He was a man who had been trained from his youth in war, and so to him this challenge was an exciting thing. It's, I, I don't know, it's, I shouldn't think it would be too exciting, though. It would be sort of like uh, somebody who's an adult challenging the sixth grade boys to action, you know, or something like that. It would, would seem like a similar thing. In this particular passage in the 17th chapter, from verses 12 through 15, 
we actually have a parenthetic statement here. It's kind of a reintroduction of Jesse and his sons because we've already been introduced to Jesse and his sons and uh, we've been through the whole um, anointing of, of David in front of his brothers and in front of his father. And so they're being reintroduced here to us so that we get the, the setting proper here. This standoff in the Elah Valley occupied everybody's attention. All of Israel, of course, was, was focused on this, this issue that was unresolved here. While this was happening, uh, David actually had sort of taken leave of Saul. He was Saul's harpist, the one who played his lyre for Saul when Saul was having his demonic attacks, and it seemed to grant soothing, if, produce a soothing effect on him. And so we're, we're told that David left the court and he went back to tend his father's flocks. His father is elderly, we're told in this particular passage, so he needed his sons to help him run the ranch, as it were. From what we read here in, in just this action by David, there's a couple of insights, I think, which are important here. Between David's harp playing and the fact that now Saul has been called to action, He's had to lead the army down to the Elah Valley and prepare for possible battle with the Philistines. Between these two things, it seems that the evil spirit has at least temporarily ceased to oppress him. Oppress him. Secondly, we see the humility of this man, David. I think it's really important for us to try to get past David's glaring failures. Uh, David uh, will fail in, in ways that uh, are as bad as anyone. And yet what we need to see is the consistency and the faithfulness of this man. He is a man of great humility. Saul started out with at least a seeming humility, but that quickly was transformed into great arrogance. But in the case of David, we have a young man here who has been called to stand in the presence of the king, to, pray, to play his lyre so that the king is soothed and the king becomes very attached to David as a result and gives him the honorary position of, of uh, armor bearer, which of course he wasn't the practicing armor bearer because Saul didn't take him down to the battle with him, but he had other armor bearers who were more experienced. But nevertheless, he gave him this honorary position. And yet David does not neglect his duties back home. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, harpist for the king now. I'm honorary armor bearer. I can't go back home and tend those stinking old sheep back there for my dad. No, he willingly goes home. Saul can get along without him. And whenever Saul can get along without him, David goes home to tend the sheep, to tend the flock of his father. David truly has a shepherd's heart. Meanwhile, we're told, uh, David's three eldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, were stationed with Saul in the Elah Valley. So they were there with the thousands, possibly tens of thousands of the men of Israel, who were camped uh, across the Elah from the uh, armies of the Philistines. And I, I tried to describe the scene to you a little bit uh, two or three weeks ago. On one side of the Elah Valley, you have uh, both, both sides, of course, there's a, there's a small plain. It's not really very large. And, and you're in the Shephelah, which is the hill country of Israel. So you're in kind of a broad valley, but there are hills all around. And to, uh, to the um, north, you find that there's a large flat-topped hill on which at that time was a city, the city of Azekah. Today it's, it's just a tell, uh, one of those archaeological sites where you dig and you discover uh, the remnants of past societies. But from the hills you look down into the valley here. 
and you could see where the armies could be stationed within less than a mile of each other, probably even less than a half a mile of each other, on opposite sides of the creek. The creek was no barrier. The Elah is not much of a creek. It's literally a creek, uh, or a crick, depending on where you come from in the United States. Uh, I come from the United States where they're almonds <laughs> and they're creeks. And they're not almonds and, and they're not uh, cricks and this kind of thing. But here, here they are lined up. And to kind of to picture, it, it's not a heavily treed area either. Of course, it may certainly had more trees in those days than it does now. Most of Israel had more trees in those days than it does now. But here they are stationed and they would daily witness, now these are the brothers of David, daily witness the humiliation of the armies of Israel by this Philistine giant named Goliath. Now, what we see here, first of all, is a clear demonstration of the superiority of God's method of choosing leadership. God did not choose Eliab to be the heir apparent to Saul when he went when, when he sent Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel, he didn't pick Eliab, even though Saul, uh, Samuel, when he walked in and he saw Eliab, he said, certainly this is the one the Lord would pick, because he was tall, he was handsome, and he was obviously strong, and he was mature, and, and yet he was not chosen, and, and neither was Abinadab, and neither was Shaman, all the way down through until you came to the youngest of the sons of Jesse. How is it demonstrated here? Well, it's demonstrated in that Goliath came out day after day, morning and evening, to challenge the armies of Israel. Did Eliab say, this despicable beast, I'll take him on myself? No, he, like the rest, stood back there and bit his fingernails, worried about this giant. Who's going to take on this giant? He's too big for me. Did Abinadab say, oh, I'll do it? Did Shammah say, I'll do it? No, none of them did. And that's going to be a very stark contrast. Because as we see we get, come along here, when David sees what's happening, his instant reaction is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Did the others react that way? No. This is the difference in the heart that God sees and that we don't see on the outside. Seeing Israel's fearful reaction to Goliath's repeated challenge, the question is, why didn't the Philistines just say, okay, Goliath, you lead us on a flying wedge, and we'll just take on the whole Israelite army, and we'll beat those dogs and drive them out of here. They saw that Israel was afraid. They saw that Israel was certainly demoralized because this, this guy came out and basically called them every dirty word in the book, and they couldn't do anything about it. Well, whatever may have been the reasons, and of course the Philistines may have thought, well, you know, Israel, last time we fought them, they really beat us badly, and Goliath is an advantage if we do a one-on-one -on -one thing, but if Goliath's in the midst of a whole chaos of fighting, he can get killed like anybody else can, so maybe his advantage won't be so great to us. Whatever they were thinking, the real reason that they did not attack Israel is because God put hesitancy in their heart. And God put hesitancy in their heart because he was planning on a particular event to transpire here that would elevate his chosen man. God was preparing the scene. And God was controlling both sides of the battle. God was preparing an opportunity to demonstrate to Israel and to these, these Philistines his choice of leader, his choice of a man who at least would be qualified to replace Saul one day as leader in Israel. Well, let's read on at verse 17. Then Jesse said to David his son, 
Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the battle cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Now just have to remember, this happens day after day. It's sort of like a maneuver. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. Now, obviously, they may have been in battle array, but they weren't engaged in battle, or David wouldn't be running right out to talk to his brothers while they're engaged in battle, right? And he was talking with them, and behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Meaning tax-free is what it means there. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him and saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from, his, <clears throat> from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, you brat? <laughs> and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same as before. Can you imagine this? Every day, reveille, guys get ready. They go march out to the line of battle, face the Philistines over there. Goliath comes out and they all kind of cringe away. He gives his challenge and they all go back to the camp for the rest of the day. This happens now for going on to six weeks. Jesse, of course, knew his sons were running low on supplies. And so he sent David on the 18-mile trip from Bethlehem to the army encampment there near Soka in the valley of the Elah. He sent with him, we're told in his passage, an ephah of grain, roasted grain, we're told. That's about half a bushel or five gallons, if you can picture that quantity. Some bread. When it says five loaves, of course, don't picture Roman meal loaves, <laughs> you, you picture the, the kind of pita bread type thing that uh, is eaten over there. And a gift of cheese for the regimental commander. You know, keep the commander thinking well of these uh, boys. Not a bad idea. And he was also, of course, supposed to check on the welfare of his brothers and bring news back to the father, to the family, about how the boys were doing down there. Now, David had a special position in the royal court. He was chief harpist for the king. He was chief soother for the king. 
He was there whenever the king was having this battle with the evil spirit. David was there to soothe his spirits and to encourage him. And David became like a son to Saul. David was given, as I mentioned before, this honorary position of armor bearer to Saul as a, responsibility, uh, as a result. And he was the anointed heir apparent to the throne. Now certainly Jesse and, and Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah and the other brothers may have only been the ones to know besides Samuel, but he was the heir apparent and David knew this. And Jesse knew this. Okay? So, with all of that, does David say, hey, wait a minute, Dad. I'm the, I'm the chief comforter of the king. I've stood in the presence of the king. I, you know that I've been anointed to replace the king. You're, and you want me to be a pack animal and carry all this stuff down to my brothers who don't like me anyway? No. David doesn't react that way at all. He is without hesitation to take on this menial task of carrying the food down to his brother. And I think he, brothers, and I think he does it with enthusiasm. He wants to do this. He is willing to do this. And in so many ways, from the very first moment we see David in Scripture, we begin to learn lessons of what it is to be a man who is in contact with the living God. A man who from his youth apparently somehow was open to the work of the Spirit of God. And through him God was able to write so many beautiful psalms that give us the, the inner senses of what it is for a human being to go through many trials and tribulations and crises and, and to hear the word, but, but God is with me. He is my high tower. He is my buckler. He is my shield. He is my fortress. And, and David knew this from a young man, as we'll see as we get a little further down into uh, this particular chapter. Do we reject acts of service because they seem too menial to us? Are the things we won't do for God because others can do it because we have an estimation of ourselves that's greater than that? I think David is an example to us. Jesus, of course, understood that this would be a problem. And that's why Jesus did what to the disciples was unthinkable. And let me just read that familiar passage to you from the 13th chapter of John, or at least the latter portion of it. The 13th chapter of John at, at verse 12, we read, And so when he had washed their feet, and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you had also ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That's one of the hard parts about Scripture. In Scripture, we keep reading about what we ought to do, but then we're told we're supposed to do them. <laughs> Not just to acknowledge that we're supposed to or to acknowledge that that's true, but, but actually to do this. And of course, what is, what's being emphasized here is the attitude, the humility of heart the willingness to be a servant. Uh, and that's so opposite the world's attitude, so opposite most other religions in the world. Uh, the higher you go in the religion, the more you are served by everybody else. And unfortunately, that's happened also within the Christian community too, as you well know, in certain aspects of it. In fact, in often too many aspects of it, 
The people who rise in the ranks are treated as if they're somehow superior or, or more highly to be honored. And to a degree, this is true. We are to honor those that minister to us, but we are not to consider them to be, uh, you know, a higher rank in, in terms of uh, human being. So David is a powerful example of humility, and he was willing to do this. He was willing to leave the sheep with a hired hand and to take these items upon him and to carry them down to his brothers. The one good part about it was, of course, it was all downhill. If you're at Bethlehem and you're going down to Soka, it's all downhill. Uh, Soka is getting down near the Philistine Plain where you're just a little bit above sea level, and Bethlehem, of course, you're 2,000, 2,500 feet above sea level, so it's, it's an all downhill uh, walk. 18 miles, so it's about a day's trip, especially downhill. And so he, he arrives early enough to hear Goliath's evening challenge. Now in those days, uh, a day started when a day started. You know, the sun starts to rise, the day starts, and, and you get going. Of course, they also went to bed when the day ended. Not like us who stay up until we're blurry-eyed <laughs> and then wonder why we can't get up in the morning sometimes. Uh, David uh, made his trip down. I think he was down uh, in the valley of Elof, probably in the middle of the afternoon. And David was uh, so excited to see his brothers that he left the food with the provision officer there and uh, ran to find his, his brothers. And after he found them, he, of course, he updated them on the affairs going on back home, which, of course, probably didn't require too much updating. And while that was happening, Goliath marched out and did his evening thing. Roared his challenge. You know, after six weeks, you get pretty arrogant. Six weeks, this guy's come out morning and evening. He's roared his challenge to Israel, and nobody has accepted the challenge. He's used to seeing people melt away from him as he approached into his head. He was almighty in his own eyes. Israelite soldiers in the front line, this is the first time David, of course, we witnessed, the soldiers on the very front of the line melted backwards very quickly in fear, we're told. They want to get out of striking distance of this guy, this behemoth. David was aghast. What is this? Those around him noticed his amazement. And some of the soldiers explained to David what was happening. This has been going on for six weeks, David. This guy comes out, challenges us, goes back, comes out in the evening, challenges us again, goes back, calls us all kinds of dirty names. And what can we do about it? But they said then to David, but the king has promised that whoever will go out and fight and defeat Goliath, he will give him riches, he will give him his daughter, and his family will be tax-free in Israel. That's a big gift. Well, depends on Saul's daughter, I suppose. But anyway, it's a <laughs> significant gift. With, with those incentives, however, certainly someone would have taken up the challenge by now. Forty days? Somebody would have said, hey, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. <laughs> Gone back and practiced his swordplay a little bit, you know. And, but none had even tried. None had been willing to even consider the idea, apparently, to go out and challenge Goliath one-on-one. -on -one. And obviously the reason was the overwhelming odds that favored Goliath. Huh. You know, if there had been Jimmy the Greek there or whoever the bookmakers are nowadays, they would have probably given you a thousand to one in favor of, of course, Goliath and against any Israelite who would go out there to take on this guy. Because in the kind of warfare we're talking about here, 
we're talking about might makes right. The strongest will win. This isn't shooting somebody from a thousand yards away with a telescope. Uh, I mean, looking with a telescope and shooting them with a bullet uh, out of a gun. This, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat. Possibly finding what the soldiers had told him to be a little bit incredible. David said, would you repeat the details again of Saul's <laughs> promise? What, what do you get if you go out and defeat this giant? The, the way David asked the question indicates, of course, what he thought of Goliath and what he thought of his challenge. David's question is one of the most profound questions <coughs> of all of Scripture. When you really think about the meaning of his question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he challenges, that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? that he should get away with taunting the armies of the God of Israel, the almighty ruler of the universe. One that God could go, Pew! and Goliath would be on Alpha Centauri. And David literally spat the question out as he asked it, with incredulity and disdain. He wasn't afraid of Goliath. He had no respect for Goliath. All he could say was, how could this total heathen speak so disparagingly of the armies of the ever-present, ever-living, almighty God. See, his, his focus was on God, not on the enemy. The enemy was great, but God was greater. The enemy was despicable. God was honorable. How could the finest of Israel's manhood tolerate this trash-talking bully for 40 days? After all, did they not have the God of Israel on their side? To me, it's, it's a clear statement of where sometimes we have stood and, and where often the church does stand. Christians who do not live by faith are powerless. Christians who do not live by faith are powerless. If, if faith isn't the, the essence of, of what motivates us, we have no power. Janice? I just have to interject here that I just see such parallel with full of Christians. Christians uh, come out of Islam in Guinea. And it's been my, you know, I think this is really illustrates what's very true about the nature of faith and also what's true about the nature of fear. And it's been our observation that there are some Christians who just seem to have that gift of faith and have met Christ in such a life-changing way that they have that response of David, which responds immediately and says, even if my husband, my children, everything is taken away from me, if I have God, that's enough. There are others who kind of stand back and say, well, maybe my courage will grow over time <laughs> and sort of hesitate. And yet it's been our observation that when people hang back, the only thing that grows is fear. Um, that the longer you stand back looking, the more demoralized you get, the more taunting gets to you, the more the problem looms. And... Um, I don't have the answers why one person has the response to faith and one person has the other, but it certainly is our prayer. We look at full of Christians, and they'll be like, like David, but I just see the parallel so clearly here is what two responses. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think that's true, and, and I, I don't think any of us can point fingers at anybody because we've probably all been in that place where we have been intimidated and have not responded in faith. And that's part of the learning process, I think, is looking at a man like David and 
learning to believe in the God of Israel as he believed in the God of Israel, and to come to believe that God will really do what he promises to do. And that's, I think, our hard part, because we live, especially we who live in the American society, we're so accustomed to everything has to be scientifically provable and uh, everything has to fit according to the standard that we are accustomed to. And if it's outside of that, we just don't see how it could possibly be. We, are, we live in a society that doesn't really believe in miracle, not real miracles. We call turning the light switch and the lights go on a miracle. Well, that's really just a scientific, uh, you know, technological development. It's not a miracle at all. But we, we don't really believe in, in miracle in the true sense of the word very often. But, you know, and, and, and David, of course, is operating out of experience. David is not feeling this way towards Goliath simply because he's just a kid and doesn't know any better. David has experience behind him. Now, not battle experience, but as we get down here and discover, he faced odds that were just as incredibly uh, difficult for him as, as Goliath. And God had given him victory. And Eliab, of course, responds the way many Christians would respond. He's stung by his younger brother's words. He overhears him talking to the other soldiers. And he thinks, I am the eldest brother. I am a great warrior. I have been to war. I have my purple heart. If I dare not to speak so boldly, how does this kid punk brother of mine get away with speaking the way he is speaking? And I, I think Eliab was remembering that it wasn't so long ago that Samuel had bypassed him and bypassed Abinadab and bypassed Jaman, got all the way down until they were all run out of sons and and they had to ask, Samuel had to ask Jesse, well, where do you have any other sons? Well, there's the kid out taking care of the sheep. We'll bring him in here. And for the kid to be anointed as heir apparent to the throne of Israel, Eliab became angry. I think he's angry because he thinks David's beginning to take that anointing seriously. I don't think Eliab took it very seriously. This guy's going to be the next king of Israel. And he thinks that David's trying to build himself up with boastful talk. Oh, you know, who, why, who are you guys letting this guy tromp around and, and taunt the armies of Israel without doing anything about it? I think there was some envy there, too, because David actually had been called into the presence of the king. David had served the king. David was cared for by the king. David was given the honorary position of armor-bearer of the king. And I think Eliab is thinking, oh, I don't think Eliab was very happy with all of that. And so he's belittling David. He's accusing David of shirking his small task. He says, you can't even stay up there with just a few little old sheep. You're not even good enough to do that, so you're trotting down the mountain here because you want to see a battle. Jonathan? As an armor bearer, why was he still up in sheep? Because I think in the case of Saul, Saul had several armor bearers. And David was sort of an honorary armor bearer at this time, not the uh, sort of official number one frontline armor bearer. Bench warming armor bearer. <laughs> bearer. Good way to put it. It's very vivid. We get the point, I think. Uh, David responds very interestingly. Uh, his response to Eliab's uh, jibes seemed to indicate that he was used to being picked on. Because he says, what have I done now? <laughs> Isn't that the response of a child? Well, what have I done now? You know. And he says, isn't it just a question? I'm just asking a question. And he turns away from Eliab. Now again, I think this is a testimony to the fact that David is not 12 here. 
A 12-year-old is not going to turn away from his elder brother, who in this case is probably 40 or so odd years old, and snub him. David is older. Uh, like I said before, I think he's 20-ish. And David turns his back on his elder brother and continues to ask questions. Who is really behind Eliab's thinking? Well, we know who is behind Eliab's thinking. Satan is behind Eliab's thinking because Satan knows that David is God's anointed. And if there's anything he can do to destroy or discredit God's anointed, he's going to do it. And if he could use the elder brother, what better means of destroying the credibility of David? If, if Eliab could cast doubt on, on David's credulity, more, more likely to believe because this is his elder brother. He knows him better than anybody else. And so he attempts to discourage his brother and to tear him down in the eyes of the other soldiers. Reading at verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they were told, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. But while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put, on, and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with his armor. And David girded his sword over, the, over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth sp uh, stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Well, David's bravado reached the ears of Saul. Saul, of course, has been wandering and waiting. Who is going to take up this challenge? Now, Saul was a bit guilty about this whole thing because if anybody should have taken up the challenge, he should have taken up the challenge because he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. And even though he probably came still two, three feet short of Goliath, he, he was bigger than anybody else. He was the king. He was ultimately responsible. As Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. In this case, the shekel. <laughs> and he should be the one to go out and deal with the problem. Saul sent for David. There's a glimmer of hope here. He wanted to check out the feasibility of David facing Goliath. I'm sure when the word first came to him, he wasn't, didn't know who it was that was being referred to. There was some guy out there who was saying he could take on Goliath. The future freedom of Israel hung on this battle. Remember, the battle was a battle between the, uh, the champions of two sides. And this was a way of getting uh, a problem solved without killing a lot of soldiers. But the victory and the defeat hung on a single combat. And whatever the result would be, it would be the same as if one army had been routed by the other army. 
And so you have to be sure that your combatant that's going out there has some chance at winning. You don't want to just feed somebody into the mill who's going to get pulverized into a pulp here because that means that your country is going to have to surrender to the enemy and become the servants of the Philistines. And so he wanted to make sure that this challenger, whoever he was, had some hope of victory. So he called David into his presence, and I'm sure he was a bit surprised when he saw that it was his harp player. And David, of course, immediately when he came into the presence of the king, he says, I can do it. You notice how he puts it there in verse 32. He said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him, on account of Goliath. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. Worry thou not, I will take care of him. Well, of course, now it pops back into Saul's mind. I know this guy. He's a shepherd. He has no battle experience. So Saul demurs. David may be brave, but the odds are just incredible. It takes more than bravery to go up against a man such as Goliath. Goliath has been trained for war since his youth. He's a man of war. This is all he's known all of his life. He's strong. He's powerful. He's excellent with his weapons. And who is David? David is inexperienced in battle. David is not a warrior who has actually proven himself by taking scalps, as it were, in battle before. We have no evidence that David actually had ever been in a real battle before, in a military engagement before. The emphasis here is not on David's youth. David is young, but the emphasis isn't you're just a little tiny kid, therefore you can't take on this. It's the emphasis is on inexperience. Inexperience. And, and we can just see this by the way the whole scenario develops. Saul would never have ultimately relented and said, okay, go off into battle if this is a little old 12-year-old stripling. You know, and, and, and some of us, we all get this picture, you know, that the, the bronze helmet went like this, you know, because it's too big for his David's little head and the armor was just hanging on the ground. No, that's not the picture that we see here. David wanted to emphasize to King Saul that he was no novice in dealing with overwhelming odds. And so he told him about the battle he'd had with a lion and the battle he'd had with a bear. Now, I don't know how many of us have ever stood face to face with a bear, it says, or, or a lion. It talks about the beard. A lion doesn't technically have a beard. It has a mane. But by saying beard, it, it, we're talking about a male lion here. The male lion is the biggest lion. It's a big animal. Now, I, you know, I don't know if the lion that exists in Israel at this time was as big as an African lion, which weighs up to 500 pounds or more. That's a lot of meat to face, you know. Goliath probably didn't weigh much more than that. So you're, you're, you're facing this, this lion, and David had actually grabbed the lion by its mane and killed the critter. Huh. Well, probably very few in Israel had done that before and also killed a bear. And so obviously we're talking about somebody who had faced incredible odds and won. And so David does not see the challenge of Goliath any differently from the challenge of these wild beasts. Particularly since Goliath has challenged the armies of the living God, he has in effect challenged God. And therefore David knows God is on my side and God will give me the victory. He's stepping forth as savior here. It's interesting, he's been in the school of faith here and experienced the supernatural in uh, a very definitive way. Yes, and I, I, is, would it not be true to say that having that experience gives him his boldness sure. here? 
I think sometimes our weakness comes from the fact that we've not experienced uh, anything like this before and not seen victory in, in a difficult situation. A bear is not an easy animal to kill even with modern weapons. Yeah, I know, they're tough, aren't they? I, I understand that a bear's got a really dense skull. <laughs> I've never tried one, you know, in combat, but... Uh... Good thing. <laughs> anyway, the point is, the Lord had given David victory over the lion. The Lord had given victory over the bear. And David saw no reason why God wouldn't give him victory over this uncircumcised Philistine. The true nature of David is displayed in his shepherd's heart. We have often, we can at times have a picture of a shepherd as somebody who's a bit antisocial and kind of a little bit rum-dum to be out just living with sheep all of his life. But to realize that this person is one who gives his life for the sheep. And that's why Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. And we're told that he gave his life for the sheep. And David did the same thing. He gave his life for the sheep. God gave him the victory. The lion was killed when the lion should have destroyed David. The bear was killed when the bear should have destroyed David. And so David experienced the victory that came through God. Let me just close today with this a word from Matthew Henry, the 18th century commentator. He says, When David kept sheep, he approved himself very careful and tender of his flock. He could not see a lamb in distress, but he would venture his life to rescue it. This temper made him fit to be a king, to whom the lives of his subjects should be dear and their blood precious and fit to be a type of Christ, the good shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in his bosom, and who not only ventured, but lay down his life for his sheep. He approved himself very bold and brave in the defense of his flock. And so David was probably one of the most powerful images of the type of Christ in the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll look at the actual battle uh, next week.